It's a big question. There are a lot of different answers to in our world today. Who or what is at work to determine the course of our lives? Who or what is at work to determine the course of our lives? Uh, You ask different people, you get different answers. Some people say the stars determine the course of our lives. Some say it's fate. Some say it's karma. Uh, All kinds of differences. Some say it's just sheer luck. And some say there's nothing ordering the world. We just all are kind of like pinballs bouncing around. And life just happens. I would suggest to you that the Bible has a coherent message. I believe that is one we need to hear. And I think that's why the Bible is composed of stories. It is one overarching story, but many lower stories, many stories of how people live out their lives to show us that it is not luck, it is not karma, it is not fate, but it is God who is at work to determine the course of our lives. It is God who makes himself known through the stories. Today I have a story for you that's kind of like a made-for-TV movie. It has twists and turns. It has all kinds of things. Jealousy, love, hatred, revenge, all kinds of things. It is the story that we find in the book of Esther. As the book of Esther opens, we see the king, King Xerxes, is in power in Persia. And the Jewish people, many of them live in Persia because... They have been taken over. They moved from Babylonian control to Persian control. And and so they live now in Persia in a city named Susa. Now that's where the palace of Xerxes was and his queen, Vashti. Now there's a sizable Jewish community there. They're in the minority, but they're treated okay, treated relatively well. As the book opens, we see Xerxes throwing a big party for all the people in the land. And it says that Xerxes gave everybody goblets of wine to drink out of. And it says that there was no limit on how much they could drink. Like a college party, it seems for seven days, they drank and they drank and they drank. What happens? Stupid things happen when you drink and drink and drink. And that's exactly what happens. After seven days, it says, uh, euphemistically, uh, Xerxes was in high spirits. He was drunk as a skunk. That's what it said. And, and so he's got all his buddies around, and he decides to show off his power. And he says, to, he, he has several eunuchs, seven eunuchs that serve him. He says, I want you guys to go, y'all go find the queen And I want you to tell her to come out here and parade around with only her crown on. Because the Bible says she, everybody loved to look at her because she was so beautiful, so gorgeous. What does Queen Vashti say? Not going to happen. That's pretty amazing, really. This king had absolute power. Whatever he said went. You notice and you read the history of the Persian Empire, they were very cruel and capricious. 
People were executed almost on a whim. And Vashti says, no, I'm not coming out. It says the king got enraged. He became very angry. And his advisors around him said to him, this cannot happen, king. Imagine if the word gets around that your wife, your queen, has rejected, has not done what you asked her to do. Then everybody, all the women are going to rise up and start doing whatever they want to do and not what their husbands want them to do. Can't happen. So it says the king deposed her. Amazingly, he didn't kill her. But Vashti shows great courage in not violating her principles. But because now there's no queen, there's a vacancy, there's a void. As chapter 2 begins in Esther, you see, I think, I think he had regrets, did the king, King Xerxes. So oftentimes, what God tells us in his word, he tells us for our own good. If you've ever been in high spirits, you've ever been too drunk to really remember what happened or, or to know what was going on, you probably have consequences that follow you. I think he misses his queen, but with his advisors, he comes up with a plan. They're going to scour the nation. They're going to look for girls that are attractive, and they're going to gather these girls. They're going to bring them in uh, to a central location, what's called a harem. They're going to bring them in, and, and for 12 months, they're going to give them beauty treatments. For 12 months, they're going to take these young girls and and they're going to make them look as good as they can look. And they're going to give them the right kind of nutrition and, and uh, beauty advice and all that kind of stuff. And basically, you know, the old game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? This is Who Wants to Be a Queen, Persian style. And so you have all these ladies come. There's a man we're introduced to in chapter 2 named Mordecai. And Mordecai is a Jew. He's a man who makes a lot of good decisions, who is faithful and trusts God and lives his life according to God's will and God's word, even in this foreign land. And he is taken in, because she's an orphan, a girl named Hadassah. Hadassah, who also we know as Esther, is basically his surrogate daughter, although they are cousins by blood. And he suggests to Esther that she should make herself known, she should... Uh, offer herself for this uh, competition and, and so she is chosen and she goes through 12 months of beauty treatment and as chapter 2 comes to a close it tells us that the king was more attracted to Esther than to any of the other women and so Esther was made the queen now she is a Jew she's in the minority she doesn't let anybody know at this point that she's Jewish not yet. We're told in a kind of short snippet right there that Mordecai, while he's by the king's gate, while he's waiting for word of this competition going on, while he's waiting for word perhaps to be sent out to him from Esther, we're, we're heard, we see that he hears, he overhears really a plot, a plot by two conspirators to try to assassinate, to overthrow the king. And so he reports this and plot is uncovered and it says those two conspirators are impaled they're they're this is the persian form of execution pretty gross they're put on these giant sharp stakes 
for public display and to kill them. That's what happens to those conspirators, and it's written down in the King's Book of Records. Chapter 3, we're introduced to a man named Haman. Now, if we, I'm not going to ask you to do this kind of cheesy, but what I want you to think about is Haman as the villain. If we could, every time I mention a Haman, if I, did, if I was teaching this to kids, I'd probably say, whenever I say the name Haman, y'all go, boo. Haman is known as an Agagite. You notice if you read through the Bible a lot, it gives you a name and then it says they were of this tribe or they were from this background. An Agagite, you must say, bless you. But Agagite was also known as an Amicalite. Now, if you've been following along the story, you might remember, uh, I taught you several weeks ago about King Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel, when he was in battle with the Amicalites and he overcame them in battle, he was instructed by God to kill all of the Amicalites because if you don't, they will cause you trouble. And he he didn't do that. Instead, he took their plunder and he took some of the people And from that point forward, all of the descendants of Agag, king of the Amicalites, all the descendants of the Agagites, they were eternal enemies of the people of Israel, the the Jewish people, the people of God. This man, Haman, is an Agagite. And kind of bad news for the Jewish people, Haman rises to a point where he's very close to King Xerxes. In fact, it says, King Xerxes gave him his signet ring. It's kind of like the royal ring uh, to wear because he was so close. They were so close friends. And Haman says to the king, because I'm so close to you and do all of this work for you, that I should get the same authority extended to me. Uh, When people are around me, they should bow down just like they do you. And and Xerxes says, yeah, you're my friend. That, That sounds good. Anybody that comes into your presence, they need to bow down. Well, Mordecai is faithful to God. Mordecai understands that in God's economy, there is only one God. You're not to bow down or worship any person. And so Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. And because of that, Haman gets angry. Haman gets bitter. Haman can't think of anything but getting even of him asserting his authority over Mordecai. So he comes up with a plan. He presents it to the king. He says, King, I'll give you a lot of money if you will pronounce an edict against this people that's seeking to undermine you. This, the Jewish people, they, they don't want to worship you. They don't want to give you the authority in their lives. King, they're just going to cause us trouble. It's my suggestion that you get rid of all of them. And the king says, basically throws his hands out, I don't really want your money, but I'll, I'll make it so. I'll sign that edict. Now, when you made decisions in those times, they believed that you would throw dice. They're called pure. You would throw these pure, and they would roll and, and give you the, the d- desired date. The, the, they would show you Uh, how you should make a decision. Remember, who or what works to bring about the outcomes of our life? They believed you threw these pure, and they would roll, and and you'd come up. So they they throw the pure. 
This is in April of 474 B.C. They throw these dice, and the date comes up March the 7th, 473 B.C. Now remember, we're counting down and counting up like we do. You're counting down. So 11 months from then, it is established all throughout the country that all the Jews will be rounded up, all the people from Israel will be executed. They'll be killed. Genocide. Much like we saw Hitler try to do in the World War II era, here a similar thing is going to happen. Well, you can imagine all the Jewish people were horrified. Not only are they told they're going to be killed, but for 11 months they got to think about it. For 11 months they got to dread it. It says in chapter 4 that Mordecai immediately began to grieve. He put on sackcloth, which was their custom. He doused his head with ashes. When they were grieving, when they were mourning, they would wear this, this sackcloth and, and cry and, and grieve. And Esther, in the palace, and Mordecai's not allowed in the palace. He's out at the gate. Esther, in the palace, hears about this. Her cousin, her surrogate father, is out there grieving. And she calls out and sends a servant out and says, Hey, here's some clothes to wear. You can take that sackcloth off. No, you don't understand. Send word back to my cousin Esther uh, that the king has signed this, this decree that all of us are going to be killed. And so the communication happens back and forth. And we're then told this, that because of the king's absolute power, because it was his protocol that no one was to enter his inner court unless he called them. If anyone entered his inner court without him asking them, giving them direct permission, that person was to be executed, even the queen. It's not like you have maybe saw in movies or, or in history where the king and queen were together in the throne room. In the Persian kingdom, the king was in the inner, inner room by himself, and no one, even his queen, could, not, could enter without his permission, unless he extended, as it says in Esther, the golden scepter to them. So that's what happens here. And Esther, uh, that's, that's the law. So Esther says, I can't go talk to him. He hasn't asked me to come. If I go in there and, and seek to overturn this decree without being asked, he could kill me. I'm going to die. Mordecai sends the servant back in with this message, and we'll read it in a few minutes. Basically, it says this, Esther, you have to stand up and act. You, God has put you in this position as queen. You need to stand up for your people. With or without you, God's going to help his people. But I believe God has you in that place for such a time as this. And so Esther sends word back out to Mordecai and says, I want you to gather all the people, all the Jewish people, and you're to pray for me for three days. You're to fast. You're not to eat or drink anything. You're to pray and fast for God to make himself known, for God to work out this situation. And so it happens. Mordecai, or excuse me, Haman right now is feeling pretty good. Haman, it tells us in chapter 5, goes home, and he, he talks to his wife, Zareth, and, and his friends, and he's feeling pretty puffed up. The king, after all, is doing whatever he wants. And uh, they, he says, you know, this is what's going on. I probably could get anything from the king now that I wanted. And so his wife and friends say, you need to go 
tell him uh, that hey, uh, Mordecai, this one who refuses to bow down, needs to be killed. As a matter of fact, why don't you go ahead and start building a pole that they can kill uh, Mordecai on when you get your favor from the king? And so that's what they do. It says they start building a pole. Uh, 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 it's like a gallows for us today, an uh, electric chair, an instrument of capital punishment. You need to build a pole. And they built a pole 75 feet high, bigger than any pole, because he could just see Mordecai up there on that pole, humiliated and dead for all to laugh at. And so that's Haman's plan. He begins to build a pole. Well, Esther, after those three days, uh, she receives this message from God, and she gives this message to the king. She says, King, I want to have a banquet for you and your loyal servant, Haman. Y'all come to the banquet. He said, he, she didn't say y'all. She wasn't from the south. You guys come to the banquet. And so they come to the banquet, and not a lot happens. They just enjoy themselves, have rich food and, and good company. And, and they, the king says, well, you've done such a nice thing for us, Esther. What, what can I do for you? What can I request? What, what do you want? What is your request? And she says, my only request is this. I want tomorrow y'all to come to a banquet. I'll prepare for you again. Just you and Haman, I want you to come eat with me again. Haman, you, you know, if you just jumped out from the page, you just see his head getting bigger. He's like the vice president, the number two guy. He thinks, oh, I'm so good. Next morning, he goes in to see the king. Now, the night between the banquets, it says the king, by happen chance, couldn't sleep. No, by God's providence. The king has insomnia. And so to try to go back to sleep, he tells one of his officials, I want you to bring me the king's record, the, the king's record of what's happened in the past few months. And so the, king, the official brings that record and begins to read, and wouldn't you know it, again, by God's providence, the official reads of the time when Mordecai was by the city gate, and he overheard the plot against the king's life, and, and he basically saved King Xerxes' life. And King Xerxes says, has anything been done to honor this man? No, the official says. So the next morning, Haman comes in again. He's feeling pretty good. And the first thing the king says to him is this. If you were going to honor somebody, how would you do it? Haman says, well, I would, I would take one of your royal robes and put it on him. And I would put him on your best horse. And I'd give him a royal headgear to wear. And I'd have him paraded on horseback throughout the streets of the town and loudly proclaiming all the time, this is what is done for a man whom the king honors. And Xerxes says, that is an amazing, that's an outstanding idea. I want you to go find Mordecai, who's out by the city gate, and I want you to put him on the horse and put the robe on him and the headgear on him, and you're to lead him through the streets of the town saying, this is whom the king honors. If this was a movie, you could just see the look of first surprise and then horror. And it says that Haman left there and covered his face and went home after doing what the king said. This time, when he tells his wife and his friends what happened, 
they say you are bound for ruin. The Bible teaches us that whatsoever a person sows, they reap. And we see that happen. But he still has to go to the banquet. So Haman goes to the banquet with just him and the uh, king and the queen. And at the proper point in the meal, the king says to Esther, you've given us these two great meals. What is it that I can do for you? If up to half the kingdom you want, I'll give it to you. She says, king, oh king, my people's lives are in danger because you signed this order saying that all of the Jewish people, that because they wouldn't worship you, should be exterminated. They should be killed. King, if, if you just ask my people to be and she's telling, she's confessing to the king she's a Jew. Uh, if you just ask my people to be your slaves, your men and women, male and female slaves, we wouldn't have said anything. But king, for all my people to be slaughtered, this cannot happen. They've done nothing wrong. And the king grows angry. And he said, who in the world ordered this thing? And she said, and she says, this vile Haman who sits right here. The king gets up, he's angry, he walks out the back, and Haman falls upon the couch. In those times, they ate reclining on a couch. He falls before Esther and starts to beg for his life. The king Xerxes walks back in, and he sees Haman right there by his queen, Esther. He says, what now, are you even going to molest my queen? Off you go, you shall die. And it says that Haman was impaled on that 75-foot pole by the city gates. <clears throat> and Esther, he says, what else can I do for you? Because he gives Esther all of Haman's estate. What else can I do for you? And she says, I still, king, we need you not to kill our people. And he says, I won't do that. In fact... Instead, I'll sign an order, which will also be executed on the day they were to be executed. I will sign an order on March 7, 473, that eternally protects the Jewish people and provides a way for them not to be uh, manipulated and plotted against. And you know, today the, the Jewish people still celebrate the feast of what they call Purim, the plural form of pure, the lots. They celebrate in the spring every year to remember how God saved the people, the Jewish people, from certain execution in the Persian kingdom. Esther was a queen the rest of her life. Mordecai, her faithful cousin, it says as Esther comes to a close, he became second in command of all the Persian kingdom because of his wise and righteous decisions. In all of that, was it by mistake? Was it by coincidence? I think not. God was at work. Not karma, not luck, not coincidence. Quickly, let me give you five lessons from the book of Esther that I think perhaps you can apply in your life, that you can learn from in your life, that maybe will make a difference in your life. First lesson is this. God works on his schedule. God works on his schedule. Notice in verses 13 and 14, he, he sent back this answer, Mordecai to Esther. 
Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. <laughs> you haven't told him you're a Jew. If this order is carried out, you too will die. For if you remain silent this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. We get impatient with God. We pray and ask him. And, but you need to know and remember that the Bible tells us that for God, a thousand years are like a day. God works on his own time schedule. And when we pray, sometimes he says yes, but sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says wait. But we can be assured that God promises in multiple places, promises that he works for his people. Romans 8, 28 says, For God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It might not be the schedule that we understand or we desire, but I'm sure you're like me. You've asked God for things on your schedule, and he said no or wait, and then he showed up and did exactly what was needed at the right time on a schedule that you never could have imagined or predicted. God works on his schedule. Secondly, God works with or without us. You know, I, I, I don't see how you read the stories of the Bible and ever let pride swell your head. Again, from that verse, verse 14, for if you remain silent this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place. Esther, you need to step up. But if you don't, God's still going to take care of his people. That's what her cousin slash surrogate father is saying to her. You know what? If God wants to do his will in Warrensburg, he can do it with or without me. Now, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of him changing families and him changing lives and his goodness coming into a world that has so much darkness, his healing coming into a world that has so much pain. But if I don't step up, if I don't allow God to grow me in faith, he's going to do it without me. He's going to do it without you. But his choice is to do it in and through you. That's the third lesson. God works through us by his choice. In other words, God could do all of his ministry without any of us. God is all-powerful. He's all-wise. He's all-knowing. God could do whatever God wants to do. He doesn't need any of us, but he chooses to incorporate us because he knows the benefits of ministry, what they produce in our individual lives. He knows that as we change from being selfish and self-centered to Christ-centered and others-focused, that uh, marvelous things happen in our lives, in us and through us. So he chooses to work through us. He gives us a choice to let him work through us. Philippians chapter 2, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. He likens working out your salvation 
to allowing God to live through you, to minister, to serve through you. He's not going to force himself on any of us, but he wants to minister in and through us. Fourth lesson, God works through a team and not individuals. You notice how Esther responded? Gather all the people and pray and fast for me. Church is a team sport. All of us are needed to do our part. We don't need just preachers and Sunday school teachers, just praise team members and uh, elders and deacons. We need all of us growing in faith, growing in service. Lastly, God works even through those who do not know him. Do you notice here how he worked through Xerxes, a pagan king, a king who didn't know God? How he works through Xerxes to take a people from the brink of extinction to a position of honor. How he takes this king and he makes a choice and he stays up all night and he hears about this record God working in and around him to bring about his will. So this question I have for you today, how is God working in your life? Maybe you have been thinking, life is just about luck, just about karma. I assure you of this, whether we realize it or not, God is working. He wants to work through us. He wants to work in us. But he's not going to force himself on us. But if we allow God to work in us and through us, then his kingdom will come. His will will be done. Father, we thank you for this time to share together, to hear from this story of Esther, a story that has meaning to us. I thank you, Lord, that maybe we can think back in our life in times where we weren't faithful and yet see you working things around us to bring us back to you. Maybe we've done terrible things like getting drunk and, and doing things to others and with others that aren't pleasing to you. May we have consequences from those actions, but I, I thank you that today is a new day. Today we can change the course of our life. I pray, Father, that you'll speak to us and we will listen. That we will open ourselves up to your works in our life. That we allow you to have control and work through us and in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.